Hello, I'm Yannit Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. And we are Unholy from Keshet Podcasts. Two Jews on the news. Actually, two Jews who are away from the news for two weeks. We, I missed you, Jonathan. I missed you too. And a great apologies to the listener who got in touch to say, <laughs> where are you? Um, no, I, I think know there were about two or three I think it was who were upset least. and a few hundreds in it my WhatsApp. Ab- absolutely right. No, and we were sorry to be away for the Pesach break, but we are back in business. And great Indeed. timing because it's a big celebratory day in the calendar, Yonid. Indeed, it's Israel's uh, 73rd Independence Day, Yom Ma'ut. And driving around Tel Aviv today, I suddenly realized, it dawned on me that there's a new scientific revelation. The creature with the shortest memory has been found. It's a vaccinated Israeli post-lockdown. Really, <laughs> because if you, if you drive around Israel, it's as if, you know, ne- coronavirus never existed. I mean, obviously it did. 6,300 Israelis lost their lives and many Israelis their livelihoods. But the mood, the national mood is of total normalcy. And when you think about the fact that a year ago we went under lockdown with the most severe restrictions, um, all of the ceremonies, the Yom HaZikaron, the Memorial Day and of Independence Day were all without any, uh, without audience, an audience and really the most severe decision to, to say that uh, families of fallen soldiers can't even walk into the cemetery, the military cemetery, uh, because of social distancing restrictions and where we are today. So it's pretty, it's pretty remarkable. Doesn't this go to this idea that Israelis are nothing if not the world's most binary people? In <laughs> other words, you've got kind of two modes. Either it's absolute crisis, total lockdown, no one goes within 100 yards of each other, or... It's completely back to normality. Let's party, <laughs> which I applaud. Here we are, you know, obviously marking Independence Day. Jewish schools and institutions are doing that, but it's still in a kind of lockdown way, pretty hybrid combination of lockdown and non-lockdown. We're good in Britain at doing grey. The sky is often grey and we know how to do grey somewhere in between. Oof. And that's how it is. So we're not doing the normal thing. But it has coincided with, at last, um, outdoor socialising and uh, gathering, uh, hospitality being reopened. And so I was on a BBC Politics TV show this week, and the opening question was, so, Jonathan, were you back in the pub garden last night? (laughs) You know, because pubs have been reopened, at least for their gardens. And I, I really had to fight hard not to reply with, I'm Jewish. Of course I wasn't rushing back to the pub garden. I'm waiting. You know, it's not my top priority Jews <laughs> Jews and pubs are usually well it's a bit of a it's a bit of a stereotype but the notion that I was waiting for one minute past midnight to stampede <laughs> my way into the pub it wasn't it wasn't quite right but I will actually be there this weekend and I'm looking forward to it wow that's that's uh that's pretty impressive I have to say though that you know I mean you've you've been in Israel during Independence Day uh days and you've probably seen like Israelis driving around with the flags right on their uh cars I have Again, this is Tel Aviv, right, to the extent that Tel Aviv represents Israel as London represents the UK or New York, uh, the US. But no one's driving around. with. Fl- I was the only person driving around with flags. And I felt like, am I the only geek who didn't get the memo that it isn't cool to go with the flags anymore? Um, I felt like in high school again. I think it's like not cool anymore. I think people have either sort of they put the flags on their, their apartment buildings or they don't do the car thing anymore, at least not in Tel Aviv. Well, what would explain that? That could be, is that a post-lockdown thing? Are we overthinking it? Or what could explain that? First of all, we're always overthinking things. Yeah, but, that's our job. Um, but again, I mean, I've, I've spoken to a few friends and they all told me that around Israel, it's still sort of a popular thing to do. Now I think it's just totally just um, 
Not a thing anymore. We don't do it. Post flag. I do have a Yomantzmuk flag story to tell you, but I think we should get onto that later because listeners to us know that we left them with a kind of Netflix-style season finale cliffhanger (laughs) a fortnight ago, which is Israeli politics. We had the election. We never missold this. We didn't tell you there was going to be resolution on March the 23rd, unholy listeners. But we said there would instead be uh, this kind of limbo period. But, you know, with the moment of drama we were waiting for, before we left was who would get the mandate, who would get the nod to form the next government and uh, or at least have a go at it. So you'll need to fill us in. Surprise, surprise, the person who got the mandate to form a government is, again, Benjamin Netanyahu. But besides that, besides officially getting the mandate from a very reluctant President Rivlin, right, he didn't even ask him to come to the uh, residence and get it. He just sent him a letter. Uh, but besides that, Netanyahu still is stuck. He still doesn't have a government. Now, what you had happening this week is Naftali Bennett, the Amina leader, saying Netanyahu's Likud party can count on my party, seven seats, seven votes, to back a right-wing government. But, Jonathan, what he also said was, I will fight with all my might against the option of fifth elections. So what do you hear? You hear, yes, I'm with Bibi, of course I am. But if he fails and he has three weeks on the clock, even less, uh, well, all options are on the table. That's basically what uh, Naftali Bennett uh, was saying. By the way, the deadline for Netanyahu's uh, end of mandate is May the 4th. May the 4th be with us if he fails, because that's going to lead us into a lot of turmoil. I just made a geeky, geeky reference to Star Wars, and you're going to have to sit through it and suffer it, because that's what you do. I'm just saying. So again, we have to say something about Naftali Bennett, right? The negotiators for his party are still sitting with Netanyahu, but they're also sitting with Lapid, right? So to borrow an analogy, analogy from the world of dating, Bennett is playing as if he's interested in a monogamous relationship. Well, actively exploring uh, polygamy, right? By the way, if the Islamist list that has actually people who are actively supporting uh, polygamy in the picture, that t- takes a whole... <coughs> Still, he'll fall right at home in that coalition. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So again, Naftali Benini has superhero negotiating powers right now. They fade away the minute Netanyahu's mandate uh, fades. Yeah, I thought that remark about the one top priority is avoiding fifth elections was a nice bit of rolling the pitch, as we would say Mm -hmm. here, for signing up for an anti-BB, Lapid-led coalition. He's prepared the ground there with that remark. So I thought that was quite deliberate. I mean, for me, if we're talking Netflix seasons, I am so enjoying the subplot of the enduring Rivlin-BB feud. I mean, I (laughs) loved that thing with the, the, you know, if the letter had had a drawing of gritted teeth on it, <laughs> it couldn't have been more clear that, you know, the, I am doing this very reluctantly. I don't want to photograph with you. Uh, and it has been like this battle of these two sort of liquid Titanic figures um, over decades. And who is really the last one standing? Because, of course, you mentioned Bibi's mandate running out. Rivlin is on his way out the door as well. And, and just will his final act be in some way to thwart Netanyahu by, you know, giving giving the ultimate nod to someone else. I, I don't know. It's been a very, very interesting subplot. I think you're absolutely right to uh, to be sort of reading between the lines when somebody, a character like Naftali Bennett's involved. But uh, the, the big question I thought and have been watching is um, whether or not he can square this apparently impossible circle, Bibi, which is on the one hand, including this ultra far-right you know, almost medieval party led by Itamar Ben-Gvir, and to have him in there 
and at the same time to have this Islamist uh, party, Ram, that we talked about uh, before. I mean, how is that circle any more squareable um, now than it was before? If anything, it's less, because what you had was Bezalel Smotrich, uh, the head of the Religious Zionism Party, on the eve of Yom HaShoah, by the way, tweeting, um, a Muslim that doesn't recognize that Israel belongs to the Jewish people doesn't have a place living in this land, right? And he is very adamant, saying there is no way that I will sit with Ram, which is, is, is a part of the Islamic uh, movement, uh, absolutely uh, uh, no way that I would do this. Trying to see Netanyahu, by the way, in his own man-made uh, situation, because he created both of these parties. He made Bezalel Smotrich very strong. He didn't want him to be as strong, but, you know, Netanyahu is always on overdrive. He created the rift in the joint Arab list uh, to lead Ram to uh, run independently. And now he's trying to make all these pieces fit together. It just seems impossible, even for him, um, and, you know, it, it kind of thing, I was, I was trying to think with an American friend, what would be the equivalent? And he told me what it was, it would be like Trump saying that Hillary is going to be his running mate in 2024, right? That is as impossible as, as, as this, even if Netanyahu somehow manages to convince both parties, right? The Ram party and the religious Zionists just don't come for the vote in the Knesset, right? I'm going to start a minority government. Don't show up. Don't vote against it. Just don't show up. It's possible. But this is a, a government that will never last uh, it will be very short-lived. Uh, By the way, I do have to point out, since we mentioned Naftali Bennett, something that has made a splash here in Israel, Jonathan, is the fact that Netanyahu and Bennett have been conducting their negotiations in English, uh, not in Hebrew, preferred language for both. You know that Netanyahu is very fluent in English. Naftali Bennett is a son of, by the way, two San Francisco hippies, uh, leftists turned... Um, well, right wing when they made Aliyah to Israel. And uh, I'm just uh, letting you know that this is the language. English is now the language of coalition building. In now, Israel. why is so that? Is want that to be- go ahead at that. I'm interested fine. in that. Why they do that? Is that because they think somehow they'll be less, you know, uh, monitorable by rivals? Or is that because actually English is their language of choice and more comfortable for both of them? Because it's quite I damaging. Would say I it think it, it, it gives them this, I, I don't want to say, or of superiority, but they think that they... You know, they, do, they know how to do something that many other Israelis don't. And they, I think for, for both of them, they're very comfortable in that language. When Netanyahu was chief of staff, uh, wait, sorry, Naftali Bennett was Netanyahu's chief of staff, they spoke in English. Um, I think the question is why it made such a splash now. I mean, it's pretty, it's a known fact that Netanyahu used to talk to his advisors in English. But yes, so that is, uh, so that is something that Israel has been talking about this week. If he does pull this off somehow and get um, both the Islamist party and the far-right party in, it'll be fascinating to see how that is spun around the world. Because on the one hand, it will be, there will be a story that Israel is taking this great step forward of democratic inclusion by having an Arab party in government for the first time. And on the other hand, there will be this other narrative, which is the Kahanists, the far-rightists are ushered in through the front door. And which one of those gets spun around the world by Israel supporters and critics will be fascinating because there'll be a pro-democracy story and an anti-democratic story on in the same moment. And I think that will be an interesting moment for Israel. It's extremely interesting. I have to tell you, as an Israeli, I feel like there is, I don't know how this will end, uh, you know, let's be honest, but I do know that there, it feels like there's a seismic shift here that can't be reversed, right? The minute the Israeli right is discussing the involvement of Arab-Israeli uh, parties in the political coalition game, this cannot be reversed. 
Right. It's so interesting, by the way, to see the Netanyahu loyalist who once delegitimized the Arab list try and give Mansour Abbas a hechsher, right, saying, oh, he wants nothing to do with the Palestinian nationalism. He's just concerned with civic problems of the Arab Israelis. And it's an interesting thing, but they know and Netanyahu knows that once this door is opened, it can't be closed again. Yeah, I think they'll try. Um, the the thing about politics, though, of course, is that he's got doing all this domestic stuff. But there, there is he is still the head of the Israeli government, and there are big decisions to be made. Uh, again, I'm talking about how people look at this from the outside. The big news that people have been following more even than the coalition stuff is um, what's been happening in Iran. And I make my third Netflix re- uh, reference here <laughs> unabashedly. Because I think this is amazing what's been happening in the sense mm-hmm. it's, uh, it looks like something out of TV. And, you know, people will have seen on Apple TV this series Tehran, Israeli TV. I'm watching a French thing called Le Bureau, which has a whole storyline about Mossad using cyber warfare against Iran. That's the fictional version, but it's looked like that in real life. So tell us what's been going on on that. Well, I, I think it's safe to say that the shadow war between Israel and Iran has appeared less shadowy uh, this this week. There have reportedly been three Israeli attacks in less than a week, an Iranian Revolutionary Guard ship sabotage in the Red Sea, an airstrike on a weapons shipment near Damascus, and a mysterious blast in the Natanz uh, nuclear facility in Iran. Now, several similar things have been happening before, right? I mean, I think it's even safe to say that in this covert conflict. There have been even more consequential events, the assassination of Iran's top nuclear scientist, uh, Fakhrizadeh, a few months ago, uh, attributed to Israel as an example. But these events have always been shrouded in secrecy, right? Both sides played the deniability uh, game. Uh, it's, you know, Avigdor Lieberman, who used to be the defense secretary, had this joke. He would always say, oh, I understand that the Air Force of Luxembourg was very active last night, right? It gave both sides this sort of zone where they, a wiggle room where they could sort of still deny being involved. Now, what seems to be the case now is that Israel is more eager to hint at its involvement. And the question is why, and more specifically, why now? Um, so obviously the issue of the renewed talks around the uh, um, return to the Iran deal and, and maybe Israel uh, betting that Iran wouldn't want to retaliate right now when the most important thing for Iran is is the um, lifting of sanctions. And also, of course, the question, we've discussed Israeli politics, so the question regarding Netanyahu. Now, I want to quote to you um, what Amos Arel, who's uh, one of the best uh, defense and military affairs analysts, I think, not only in Israel, wrote this week. He wrote, Netanyahu is acting as an agent of chaos because chaos serves him. Now, what Amos is saying, he's not saying Netanyahu wants war, all-out war with Iran, right? Obviously, that, that's, that's pretty insane. But he's saying that a constant sort of backburner reminder of the conflict uh, with Netanyahu adding the subtext that is, I'm the only one who can solve this. I'm the only one who can stand uh, against Iran, which has always been his motto, is not necessarily a bad thing for a, a prime minister whose back is to the wall politically and, and legally. No, I thought that too, that the cynical view would be that he hopes that somehow a moment of national crisis enables him to lean on, you know, Smotrich and Ben Gvir if he has to, and and others to say, look, it's now a moment of coming together. I don't think, I can't believe that Benny Gantz would fall for that trick again, you know, where again. he went into government <laughs> with BB last time because of the coronavirus pandemic crisis. Would he be, you know, lured into a government of national unity? No, he's looking at the clock, Jonathan. He's looking at November 2021. He must be. He must be. And as you've told us before, that's when he, according to the law, would take over if there's
there's no other government. He's got his eye on that. I mean, the 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 other bit bit of this though that troubles me a lot is the idea that in this limbo there isn't really the kind of political oversight of Netanyahu mm-hmm. that there was before. And, uh, you know, the, the whether it's the relevant Knesset committees, but really the cabinet and security yeah. cabinet. I mean, who is really at the wheel at the moment? Is it just Bibi and is it him on his own? I mean, is anybody else in the room when these decisions have to be taken about, you know, hitting back or to, or, or me making an offensive strike against Iran in an attempt to halt or slow down its nuclear ambitions? You know, is he? Does he have in this strange kind of interim interregnum? Does he have a free hand? That would be the troubling thought. Yeah, I think that's a, uh, on the minds of many Israelis. The question of the fact, you know, the fact that the security cabinet cabinet isn't dealing with this this question, the fact that there's, as you mentioned, no Knesset over oversight uh, yet, and the fact that Netanyahu seems to be the lone wolf here, right, making all of the decisions by himself, um, is is where obviously he's just, he's talking with his top military generals. He's talking with uh, uh, the director of the Mossad. I think will get into that in a moment because I wanted to make a point about that. But again, he listens to Netanyahu, and that has been a problem for a while now. The more of his sort of inner circle that dwindles because people leave the inner circle for all sorts of reasons uh, is is indeed a worrying uh, thought. Now, I do want to make the point, Jonathan, that um, there's another shadow war going on here. Um, And I'm not talking about Israel and Iran. That's child's play. I'm talking about two Israeli top security officials who are, how shall we say this, both eyeing the inheritance, right? I mean, if you had to look into your eight ball, magic eight ball, which I know you own, and I'd ask you who would be the successor to Netanyahu when he ever leaves office in months or years or decades, um, and you would say two people. One would be uh, the Mossad, director of the Mossad, Yossi Cohen, and the IDF chief of staff, Aviv Kuchavi. Now, some, and this relates to the three incidents we were talking about, some in Israel's defense echelon are pointing to the fact that there is an inflation of information coming from these two organizations vis-a-vis Iran, more information than is needed, i.e., maybe an attempt to take credit for operations that usually remain creditless. Uh, there's always also been this incident in January. Aviv Kochavi was very adamantly uh, speaking against the um, Iran deal. Sources close to the head of the Mossad were saying this was a big, big mistake. So this is where... We are, and that is also something something that is happening in in uh, backdrop of this whole story. Yeah, that would be troubling, I think, for people who have previously admired the kind of discipline uh, and discretion of those at the top. If they are now fighting for credit, that's always where trouble begins, just in, yep. in politics anywhere. Um, big story out of the Jewish diaspora, uh, I think, this week, and particularly in America, will be something very, very different, and that is the death of Bernie Madoff. And the reason why I think it's worth us discussing that is Bernie Madoff... The The Mossad had nothing to do with it. Just (laughs) You were nowhere near there. Um, The thing about (laughs) Bernie Madoff is... Obviously, there's it's always, you know, there's a kind of collective cringe in Jewish diaspora communities when someone does something bad and is in the news and you wait to hear their name and you hear a Jewish name and you put do a sort of face palm because you can't bear the idea that some horrible fraudster or criminal is Jewish. This is the Harvey Weinstein syndrome or Jeffrey, Jeffrey Epstein, Epstein syndrome. Should we go on? Let's not go on. There's a kind of cringe. But 
with Madoff, it, there's an extra dimension. It wasn't that he just happened to be Jewish and did this massive pyramid scheme estimated at, you know, around $50 billion fraud, the most enormous fraud. It's rather that there was something very specifically Jewish to the whole story in terms of his victims and, and this is what I wanted to talk about, even his methods and the ability to be successful. And that is that he ripped off people by promising these, but you know, too good to be true investments, telling people, invest your money with me and you're going to make 10, 15%. Who are the people who invested with him and lost a fortune? You just re-listen, you, you read through the list of victim uh, victims and it is a roll call of major global and particularly American Jewish organizations so that he uh, ripped off Hadassah, the women's uh, Zionist organization, which supports hospitals and other things in Israel, to the tune of $90 million uh, that it had invested with him. I mean, as somebody said, who rips off Hadassah? That is like mugging <laughs> your grandmother. I mean, but he did that. He uh, took... Uh, to $100 million from Yeshiva University. The Jewish wow. Community Foundation of LA lost $25.5 million, and the equivalent body in Washington, D.C., $10 million. Ramaz Jewish Day School, I mean, in New York, you know, I know people who went to that school, lost over $5 million American Jewish Congress. Elie wow. Wiesel lost all his savings. Yeah. Um, Holocaust survivor Elie Wiesel, Nobel Peace Prize winner. Uh, his charitable foundation lost $36 million. Steven Spielberg lost 70% of uh, his the money that went to his Wunderkinder Foundation, etc., uh, etc. Et you, you can keep going with this. It seems as if there wasn't a Jewish organization in America that was left untouched by this scandal. And that goes to something really interesting about his crimes. People talk about this phenomenon known as affinity fraud, which is when somebody is able to defraud you by trading on the affinity you will feel for each other. And so there are particular scams that will be uh, where the victims are African-Americans, where the uh, uh, the front organization will appear to be a fellow African-American organization saying, you know, out of solidarity, let's do this together. Similarly with Latinos, this was the Jewish one. And I just think there's a couple of, you know, particular things about it that set it apart. I mean, one is the idea that the, the people acted as effect effectively kind of character witnesses for Madoff. So if you were the Elie Wiesel Foundation and you heard that the Steven Spielberg charity had invested, well, you thought that's got to be legitimate because we know those guys. We, you know, we know each other, we see each other. And if it's good for them, it must be good for me. But the other thing I think which is less sheds less flattering light on the American Jewish community is that Madoff traded on this notion of exclusivity. You know, it was hard to invest your money with Madoff. He would set various barriers. And I do wonder if there was this feeling that uh, among Jews, they wanted to be in the inner circle and in the mm -hmm. club. And Madoff was very good at sort of saying, no, you know, I don't want your money. That's not good enough for me. And of course, then people wanted it even more. So just on every level, uh, this was a Jewish story about a kind of underside of American Jewish life that... I think um, people would rather not look at and just shows you when people tell you about Jewish seichel, to use that Yiddish word, <laughs> that there's a kind of, you know, a, a, a particular kind of Jewish good sense when it comes to financial matters. Here comes, you know, rebuttal of that, uh, that here they were as naive as anybody else when one of their own was looking to rip yeah. them off. And I think that's part of the Madoff story. Yeah, that's an all of that is an excellent segue to chutzpah. Mm. Um, 
that we should talk about, but didn't we want to say a few more words about Israel's 73rd Ah, yes, Day? the 73rd birthday, of course, we must. So we'll pause, we'll pause on the chutzpah well, before we get for to a chutzpah, moment. <laughs> yeah, no, we should have a, mo- a moment of celebration as we think of this particular story, which is I have told you and our listeners a couple of times before about the fact that I live in the Haredi part of uh, North London. I have Haredi neighbours on both sides and... Um, when my children went to the to Simon Marks Jewish Primary School, which they did, which is a wonderful um, Jewish school in this area, uh, it, it's a school that is, among many other things, very celebratory on Israel's birthday. And the at one point, the one of the veteran Hebrew teachers of the school telephoned the police to say there's a terrible thing going on, which is that people are burning the Israeli flag outside our school. And this is terrible because all the children will be so intimidated and they're terrified. This was in the early noughties when it was the period of the war on terror, etc., post 9-11. And the police sent teams of squad cars over to the school fearing this was going to be some terrible incident in sort of war on terror relations. They arrived to find a group of Nature Carter Hasidim oh dear. <laughs> burning the Israeli flag as a demonstration outside this school which had lots oh. of blue and white flags. Imagine trying to explain to four members of the Metropolitan Police in London why exactly it was. They arrived there and they were trying, looking at these Haredi men thinking... Which ones are the Jews from the Jewish school? <laughs> Who is, who's the victim here? They were so confused. Try As you oh, try dear. to explain religious anti-Zionism to the constable of the London police force, <laughs> this was a very tricky moment in the oh. life of our neighbourhood. And every Yomatzmut in this area, I always think of it. <laughs> oh, dear. And can I let you in on a little slightly guilty secret, which is... Um, Please do. I, as you know, and uh, we've talked about many times, I feel very bound up one way or another with uh, Israel and sort of always have, you know, my mother was born in Petach Tikva and so on. And yet one event that oddly doesn't do it for me emotionally and never has is Yom Hatzmaut. And I feel a little bit guilty about it. But I was in Israel, uh, you know, when I, I've, I've been there in person for Yom Hatzmaut and find the transition from Yom HaZikaron, the Memorial Day and the way it goes, segues into Yom Hatzmaut, I find that quite moving. Uh, again, it goes to that binary thing about Israel. It's either you know sorrow and loss or it's celebration and flag waving. But it's something about the flag waving bit of it, actually, that doesn't do it for me. I, you know, and I can be very rah-rah for Israel, don't get me wrong. And I was right there uh, along with London's LGBT population cheering for Dana International in 1998 at the Eurovision Song Contest. Please you know, send and when us is, photos of this. And when Israel is playing Russia for some European qualifier, you know, I'm gung-ho for Israel. It's something about uh, the overtness of all the kind of flag-waving. And I, th- what I think it probably is, it's something just general. I don't love it when people massively wave the flag here. It's become very fashionable now for British politicians to do that. And, you know, I remember somewhere in my head, and I think it must have lodged uh, the words of Amos Oz, the great Israeli writer, peace campaigner, who said that somehow all this stuff feels odd for Jews in a way because we're old in the world and this stuff, passports and flags, feels relatively new for this very ancient civilization. And he talked about feeling sometimes like a grandfather in the kindergarten. Um you know, where the the business of sort of, you know, tinsel and sort of balloons and flags 
it rubs me up the wrong way somehow because of the jingoism of it, the overt nationalism of it. I find, you know, moments of solidarity with Israel celebrating its triumphs and tragedies. I can't help but do that. But um, somehow it doesn't do it for me on your Matzmut. You know, I need, can you help me, Yonid? I'm, I'm wondering. You, you mentioned Amosos, and I think one of his more moving lines, and I'm probably not quoting this correctly, out of his most, I think, best book is, is the tale of uh, love and darkness. And he says about Israel's founding that a dream realized is always disappointing, right? I mean, there's the dream and the fulfillment, and the fulfillment always has to be a bit disappointing. And I wonder since, you know, I made this joke earlier about how you, in a way, are more Israeli than I am. I mean, you mentioned mm. your mother, Sarah, being born in, in Petah Tikva, 1936, I, I believe. That's and, right, yeah. And of course, yeah. your great, great uncle, who is uh, uh, a, an officer in the British mandate here, and also sort of, I think it's okay to say an avid Zionist, right, and sort of yeah, torn yeah. between both worlds. Again, quoting from your, your great book uh, would, that I urge our listeners to uh, read, Jacob's Gift. I mean, you are so um, sort of intertwined with the history of this this country, and I know that you you love it very much. I would dare say this is very chutzpah of me, right? Israelis explaining to you your feelings towards Israel, <laughs> but I kind of dare say that your relationship to Israel. When I listen to you talking about the country, always I think of a Jewish mother uh, relating to her favorite son. You're, you have a lot of criticism, but you fiercely love it. I mean, that is what I, I feel. Maybe that connects to the not loving. I mean, obviously you say you don't love flag waving of any flag, really. But maybe that's connected a little bit to the, what you feel like that yes, show off I, moment of you know, nationalism. Yeah, I think yeah, it's very perceptive, actually. I think it is something like that, where my relationship with it is to be, you know, like you could say, like a Jewish mother who's sort of critical but loving, and actually critical because loving. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's because you care, and the, it's holding both of those in tension at the same time is kind of my relationship with Israel, rather than having to just be one and be kind of rah rah cheering along. It's actually that engagement. You know, I think I had a, a good friend who talked about the relationship of uh, you know diaspora Jews. Uh, with Israel as being a bit like Jacob uh, and the angel, uh, where it's both, you know, wrestling and hugging. And that is the relationship, actually, that you are intimate and bound up with Israel, even as you appear to be wrestling and grappling and even struggling with it. And somehow Yom Atzma asks you to sort of park that and no longer be um, this sort of critical friend, but just to be the kind of, uh, you know, uncritical friend. And somehow... Maybe I find that just a little bit difficult because I want to sort of take the whole thing. But as I say, I can have my moments, um, uh, you know, and I think the mark of someone who does feel bound up with the country is that you celebrate its triumphs and grieve its tragedies. And, you know, like I say, whether it's, you know, voting time at the Eurovision Song Contest, once Britain has been knocked out, which, by the way, happens very early, um, (laughs) or uh, its tragedies. And, you know, and those come, obviously, we know all too often. So one way and another, feeling bound up with it. And maybe your Matsumut doesn't really allow that sort of complexity quite enough. But look, there are 364 other days of the year that do. And, uh, and, you know, we, we, we often mark them together in these conversations. You know, you, we mentioned uh, President Rivlin and his reluctance uh, giving the uh, Netanyahu the, the mandate. 
and I think of, you know, I can't not think of uh, when he began his tenure. This was uh, almost seven years ago. He gave a very famous speech. I think it's still his most famous speech. He spoke of the fourth tribes of, of Israel, the fact that there's a majority of secular Jews, and, of course, then the religious Zionists, the Arab Israelis, the Haredim. And he talked about, you know, the rift between all of those groups. And I, I think as we celebrate the, the 73rd Independence Day and we look at Israeli society, the sad thing is that the, the, all of the, the, the schism has just grown wider, right? I mean, obviously, uh, politicians haven't done their part to um, try and bridge the gap, some of them actually just making it wider. Um, and maybe, and this could be a, a good point, I hope, uh, maybe because Israel doesn't feel like it's under existential threat the way that we used to feel, then a lot of that social cohesion is sort of dwindling. Um, maybe. Um, that wasn't my funny story. To no, no, no. Funny story. I, was just, <laughs> I was just making but, a point But no, it, just, it does just show you, uh, we, in terms of social cohesion, it's not going to happen anytime soon among the warring <laughs> Jewish communities of my neighbourhood. Um, but, we, <laughs> but we do owe you a Chutzpah Award nomination, and it relates actually to a different festival, different time of year. Um, as you know, it's open season on New York Governor Andrew Cuomo at the moment, who's in big trouble politically for multiple reasons at the center of a probe on sexual harassment and also um for covering up the true figures of deaths in uh, from coronavirus in nursing homes so it's open season on him and stories are beginning to emerge but i just thought he should get the chutzpah award for the revelation in a new york times uh investigation of andrew cuomo which says that he was uh, he often was irritated by campaigning apparently he didn't like reaching out to voters and he was told he had to show, uh, was to attend a jewish event during sukkot which as you know is the festival when the faithful gather outdoors beneath um, you know temporary branches and greenery in various sort of structures and when he heard this Cuomo that he was going to have to go and meet Jewish voters in Sukkot during Sukkot apparently was heard to say these people and their fucking tree houses was his <gasps> words uh, now he of course has denied this a spokesman has said I was shocked not of what he said but of you actually yes, now, we can, I could, I that could, is what I was shocked it is at. we do have younger listeners so we can say these people and their effing tree houses I'll give you that version for the edit if you want um, but the <laughs> Cuomo spokesperson has denied he made the comment adding that his two sisters married Jewish men and he has the highest respect for Jewish traditions. I and always think a of lot this, of money to Bernie Madoff. This is the sort of Ivanka defense, which is, you know, how can I be <laughs> hostile to Jews? One of my family members has married a Jew. But there we are. Um, you know, these people in their tree houses is a new take <laughs> on Sukkot. So I think he's a shoe in for our uh, I think so. I don't think we have any other nominee. I yeah. think that's good. I We're think good it's good. Go for, for Mensch, stiff competition this week. Um, I'm drawn to Julian Edelman, the, uh, I want to say, the most accomplished, some might say only, uh, Jewish player in the National Football League, accomplished uh, player for the New England Patriots, uh, not just because he announced his retirement this week and did so wearing a mug in David, but he was consistently not just a happens-to-be-Jewish um, athlete, but really proud Jew wore blue and white boots uh, for and would often use there's a thing where you can wear different boots to raise awareness and, and funds for a charity and he would often highlight Jewish and Israeli charities so Julian Edelman the, the Jewish NFL guy is a, is a candidate there's also the story of uh, the young woman South African woman who has been rejected from a gap year program 
because her in Israel because her mother is not Jewish. Demi Putziger, she's campaigning against that. She's a good candidate. Uh, I think you have yourself a very good nominee for Mensch as well. From I this think so, event. actually two. Uh, if that's okay, I mean it's the same story, but it's two women. Uh, you know that uh, um, Yom Ha'atzmaut always sees the lighting of the torch ceremony in Mount Herzl. Uh, it's always very emotional. And this year, two extraordinary women uh, lit the torch together, and I think they're worth mentioning. Shira Isakov, who was gravely wounded after her husband uh, tried to murder her, today her ex-husband, um, and uh, stabbed her uh, in front of their son. She was saved thanks to her neighbor, Adi Guzi, who heard the cry for help and came over. Uh, and while Shira was still in recovery, she actually stood in front of the camera and gave an interview and said, you know, she was beautiful woman, sort of her face still lacerated, her teeth broken. She said, I have nothing to be ashamed of. The person who has something to be ashamed of is my husband. And she became this heroine in Israel telling the story of, of domestic violence. And they lit the torch together, being these prominent voices against domestic violence, saying uh, for all the women rising from the abyss who openly courageously remind us of how much more needs to be fixed here. That just left many Israelis speechless. And I thought that was a, a beautiful moment. Yeah, no, that's a very worthy nominee um the i thought we should do a shout out though whether it deserves the mensch award or not we will leave to our listeners but you and i both Yonit, <laughs> have been become mildly obsessed by the latest addition to the duolingo suite of languages this is the app for learning languages they have added as their hundredth language yiddish and very exciting i thought we should do a duolingo off i have got my app open here um, yes. I know you were absolutely top phone. of the class in every subject, your need. We have established <laughs> this early on. But no, I want to see English. how you do on this. Now, Bo-bo-le. I am pressing start on my one here, and I yes. think you're going to do the same. It's asking me, it's a little picture, and it's asking me to say a man. So I'm going to press that. <laughs> there we are. It's told me, great. Now your turn. Oh, hang on. It's speaking to me. Let me see. And I think that means a tiger in a park. I'm going to check. Nice job. Very good. I'm just wondering whenever would you need to yell in Yiddish, a tiger in the park? Well, I I now feel... When will this come in handy? There will be a moment when you and I... Actually in London, maybe. Maybe in London. I feel as if you and I will take Unholy on the road and one day we will be in Madrid (laughs) and we will identify a bear in Madrid and we will both in perfect Yiddish tell the locals there's a bear in madrid and they will look look at us with completely baffled because when have they ever had a yiddish speaker in madrid um i think it's going to be a very niche interest but hang on let's continue ah the tish is blue okay i'm gonna say the table is blue excellent see i'm learning such you're such a nerd. <laughs> I, I don't think I'm not going to be continuing to do this art long afterwards. I'm sure. I'm sure you will. I just have to. I don't want to disappoint the flocks of people rushing to the Duolingo Yiddish uh, app. I'm just saying that there are some phrases there you really have to be somebody's grandmother to pull off, Jonathan. Yes. Let's be honest. I think that's true. And that is some way off for both of us. Uh, that would be our Mensch uh, and Chutzpah nominees. Uh, for this week i think that may be our podcast for this week you have to it's compulsory uh, subscribe you have to follow us on instagram at two jews on the news uh no letters no lum no numbers just two jews on the news 
Uh, give us a great review, ping us, mention us, talk about us in Yiddish to your friends. <laughs> and if you have one uh, Yiddish-speaking grandmother, do that as well. Uh, it's been good to be with you, Yonit. Indeed. Let's say thank you to our uh, executive producer, uh, Lior Friedman, and to Yair Bashan, to Rom Atik, and to Rad Eshel. What are we going to say? Mazel Tov, Israel. Uh, Happy birthday. I'm, I'm searching for my Yiddish. Uh, <laughs> oh, yes. Bubele. I don't have the rest. That's what I got. No, that's next week's lesson. But for the moment, exactly. there's a bear in Madrid. <laughs> have a good week. Bye-bye.